Hi, good morning. Glad to see you here this morning, this first Sunday in December. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here wherever you are in your spiritual journey. Know that you are welcome. Our goal every Sunday when we gather is to point you to the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. And we believe the best way we can do that is just open up the scriptures and preach what they say. And so that means on a week-to-week basis, we're usually preaching books of the Bible verse by verse. This morning, that means that we are in Philippians chapter 4. This fall, we've been making our way through a series on the book of Philippians. And this morning, we've landed in Philippians 4, verses 8 to 9. We slowed down a little bit here in chapter 4 just to make sure we're, we're gathering all the wisdom from this particular chapter. And, and I think this particular verse this morning, or verses this morning, will be encouraging, no doubt. So let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we do pray that you would be with us this morning. We thank you uh, for the reminders that we've just been singing about, that you took on flesh. You took on flesh so you could come and rescue us from our sin. Lord, we are grateful for that, and we pray this morning that we would that we would have grateful hearts, that we would remember what you've done for us, and that it would encourage us to think and live differently. Father, we pray that you would now minister to us through your word, through the preaching of your word, through the book of Philippians. We pray that in Philippians chapter 4, you would speak loudly to us. This morning, whatever distractions we've had going on in our life this week, or whatever distractions we will have coming up this week, we pray that we would be able to set those aside and that we would be able to hear from your word this morning. So Lord, help us. We just admit we're weak. I admit I'm weak. I admit that I've had distractions this week, and I pray that you would just minister to us in the midst of the craziness of life. Please speak to us, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Well, in my high school years, I took a class that was simply known as foods. Or more technically, I took foods one, one semester, foods two, a second semester. The goal of the class, at least as I understood it, was to learn elementary cooking and baking skills so that theoretically you could survive on your own. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that foods class at Sheraton High School was the most academically rigorous class of all time because it was not. But it was a fun class, and one of the things that made it fun was the way that the class was set up. At the beginning of the semester, you would team up with three other people of your own choosing, and then you would sit at the same table with those people throughout the semester to complete your various cooking and baking assignments. Practically speaking, that if you played your cards right and made sure that your schedules lined up, you could team up with a group of your friends, take the class together, and even sit at a table together throughout the course of the semester. And so that's exactly what some of my friends did. Several of us took a class together, and I ended up at a table with three of my closest high school friends, Kelly Schneider, Brian Goldsmith, and Derek Kent. Now, at our table, there was certainly a hierarchy in terms of kitchen skills. Our friend, clearly was, our friend Kelly was clearly the most gifted and experienced in the kitchen. We gave him the hardest task. Brian and I were somewhere in the middle, and at least in our estimation, our friend Derek was the low man on the totem pole, which meant that we usually gave him the easiest kitchen task possible that we deemed the least likely that he could mess up. Practically speaking, this meant more times than not that his assignment was to make the Kool-Aid. Now, for some reason, whether it be budget reasons or personal taste reasons, our food teacher was apparently convinced Kool-Aid was the right beverage to accompany any meal or snack. And so whether we were making spaghetti or baking chocolate chip cookies, Kool-Aid was the beverage of choice. Now, if you know anything about Kool-Aid, you should know that it's one of the simplest things in the world to make. All you need is a pitcher, some water, a cup or two of sugar, and a packet of Kool-Aid. It's not rocket science. It requires almost no kitchen skill, which is why we always assign the task to Derek. Now, there's something you should understand about my friend Derek. He was and is good at pretty much everything he does. He's the type of kid and now the type of adult who excels in almost everything. But for some reason, he could not make Kool-Aid, 
Without fail, every time he made the Kool-Aid, it tasted absolutely terrible, and it drove him crazy. Now, of course, as any good high school friends would do, especially teenage boys, we dogged him relentlessly about his Kool-Aid failures. And for his part, he was genuinely disturbed by his inability to make Kool-Aid. At one point, he even convinced our foods teacher there must be salt in the sugar jar. So she dumped out the entire jar and refilled it with new sugar, but alas, it made no difference. Week after week, class after class, Derek made the Kool-Aid. Week after week, class after class, the Kool-Aid tasted awful. Derek's continued Kool-Aid failure is one of life's great mysteries. It wasn't until the end of the semester that the mystery was finally solved. Apparently, after Derek would make the Kool-Aid and put it in the refrigerator, some of our other friends from the class would come and sabotage the Kool-Aid every week. <laughs> now, most of the time, they sabotaged it by pouring copious amounts of salt in, but I'm sure there are other kitchen ingredients involved also. But the bottom line is, these added ingredients ruined everything. And in that, we learned an important lesson in foods class. What you put into something matters. If you want good Kool-Aid, you need the right input. You need the right ingredients. If you want bad Kool-Aid, just put in the wrong ingredients. And as much as that principle is true for Kool-Aid making, and it is, I can, attest to it I can attest to it personally, I think there's also a spiritual truth in that also. If you want good output in terms of doing the right things to honor Christ, you need good input in terms of what you're putting into your mind. Or to say it another way, if you want to do the right things, you need to think about the right things also. And the reason why I say that, and the reason why I think that's a principle that we need to adhere to, is because I think this is something that's taught throughout the New Testament. In Romans 12, in the context of talking about offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice, in other words, a call to obedience, Paul challenges us to make sure that our minds are being transformed and renewed. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus connects our way of thinking with our actions, as he talks about how murder can be traced back to the thinking of hate or how adultery can be traced back to lust. In today's passage, Paul challenges the Philippians to live a certain way. He says to follow his example, but before doing that, he encourages them to think about right things. In other words, there's a correlation between what we think and what we do. And in that, I think there's a pretty massive challenge. Because here's the thing, in the church, we're pretty good at talking about doing the right things. And in the home, too. Tell the truth. Avoid immorality, live for others. We talk about these things, but we often neglect to talk about the importance of thinking about the right things. Or to put it in terms of our earlier analogy, we tend to focus, focus on the Kool-Aid itself rather than the ingredients that go into the Kool-Aid. But as I learned all the way back in high school food, foods class, the ingredients matter. The input affects the output. And so my hope this morning is that we would leave with the desire to do the right thing, no doubt. But I pray also that we would leave this morning with the renewed resolve to think about the right things because those two things are not disconnected. The input affects the output. The ingredients affect the final product. Our thinking affects the way that we live. So that said, let's turn our attention then to Philippians 4 where we find this principle at work. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand here out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. There's two short verses this morning, but two powerful verses, no doubt. So you can follow along with the words on the screen, or you can listen as I read, or you can look along in your own Bibles. But Philippians 4, 8, 9 says this, beginning in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It's the word of God, you may be seated. 
Now, there's quite a bit going on in verses 8 and 9. There's some lists that we find in both verse 8 and verse 9. But these two verses, I think, can be boiled down to two fairly straightforward commands. Think about the right things. Do the right things. Look first at the command to think about right things. We see this in verse 8 again. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So in verse 8 here, Paul gives a list. He says, whatever is, and then he gives six adjectives to describe the types of things that we should be thinking about. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. He says, these are the types of things you should be thinking about. Now, I suppose we could try to dive deep into each of those words and ask the question, what does this word mean? What does it mean for something to be true or honorable or just or pure or lovely or commendable? But to think in that way where we're just diving deep into each word, I think would be to potentially miss the larger point of the verse. I don't think Paul is necessarily wanting us to dissect each of the six adjectives here and figure out, well, what does this mean? In fact, most of them are self-explanatory. Rather, I think what he's doing here is stacking adjectives to make a rhetorical point that we should think about that which is good and right. And that way of interpreting the verse, I think, is confirmed by the way the verse ends. At the end of verse 8, notice there's this shift in language. Instead of continuing with the language of whatever is, Paul instead uses the language of if there is any. He concludes the verse by saying, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise. And those last two statements are meant to be a summary of the list to that point. To think about what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable is to think about what's excellent and worthy of praise. And Paul's challenge to the Philippians is to think about these types of things. Now, obviously, there are a lot of things in the world that could fall in the category of being excellent and worthy of praise. A mountain peak glistening in the sun, excellent and worthy of praise. A cheetah running at full speed, that's excellent, worthy of praise. A hummingbird hovering and darting from flower to flower, that's excellent and worthy of praise. A young child understanding something for the first time, where you see it in their eyes, they get it, excellent and worthy of praise. A father or mother sacrificing for the good of their children, excellent and worthy of praise. A teenager joyfully volunteering to serve their elderly neighbor, excellent and worthy of praise. A good piece of German chocolate cake, a perfectly seasoned steak. These are excellent and worthy of praise. A picturesque sunset over Nebraska fields. Again, excellent and worthy of praise. The point is, there are all kinds of things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And I suspect Paul uses the language he does here in verse 8 because he wants us to realize, indeed, there are many things that we should be thinking about and praising God for because there are many excellent and good things in the world. But having said that, it should be obvious to us that the most excellent thing and the most praiseworthy things are found in his word. Whereas we may debate about the value of a certain stake or the beauty of a certain sunset, there's no debating that the truths that we find in God's word are indeed excellent and worthy of praise. Most notably, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is indeed, to use the words of verse 8, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. The idea that Jesus would take on flesh, which is what we're celebrating this Christmas season, that he would go on to live a perfect life, die on the cross for our sins, be raised three days later, ascend to the right hand of the Father and come again one day, that all who trust in him could be rescued from their sin and experience the joy of life eternal. That good news is without question excellent and worthy of praise. There are a lot of things that are excellent and worthy of praise, but no doubt the gospel is at the forefront. The question is, with all of these things, is this the type of thing that we're thinking about? Are these the types of things that we're thinking about? Are we thinking about that which is excellent and worthy of praise, or 
Are we being distracted by other things? Or to ask it another way, are we putting the right types of things into our mind, the right ingredients, or are we putting the wrong types of things into our head? When I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, I was introduced to something known as the food pyramid. Now, perhaps you're familiar with it, but if not, here it is. I'm going to ask Kay to throw it up here on the screen. I should let you know that this particular food pyramid is out of date, so don't get all bent out of shape. Like, I don't agree with this. That's okay. It's out of date, just to let you know from the start. But the basic idea of the food pyramid is this. If there's something at the bottom of the food pyramid, you should eat more of it. If there's something at the top of the food pyramid, you should eat less of it. So, for example, it's better to eat more carrots, which would fall in the vegetable group there, than it is to eat Twinkies, which would fall in the category at the top, fat, oils, and sweets. Now, again, I should let you know that this particular pyramid has come under some pretty serious criticism over the years, and eventually it was updated in 2005 before it was replaced in 2011 with something called MyPlate. So don't go home and say, we have to follow this pyramid. That's not the point here. The point, though, the point, though, is this, and I think we can all recognize there's some wisdom behind the basic concept of this food pyramid. There are certain things that we should eat more than others. I think we all inherently know there's nothing wrong with eating a candy bar every once in a while. In fact, sometimes it's delightful. But if your diet consists only of candy bars, it won't be long before you have a real problem on your hands. And for that matter, if you eat a bunch of stuff at the top of the pyramid, all in one setting, you might find yourself in trouble sooner rather than later. As an example of that reality, I would present to you the case of one of my former youth group members, Rob. I was a youth pastor in Texas for five years, and Rob was one of the regulars in our group. Now, Robert was a bit of a quirky kid, but he was sweet. And for the most part, I had no trouble with him. He was the type of kid who stayed in the background and never sought out the spotlight. But on one particular spring break mission trip, the spotlight found him. We were on our way to Boulder, Colorado, and somewhere between Amarillo, which is where I was a youth pastor in Boulder, we stopped at a McDonald's to grab a bite to eat. For whatever reason, Robert decided he was going to go all in. He decided he was going to spend his entire budget, I guess, on this one meal at McDonald's. I forget what his exact order is, but I remember him ordering and thinking, that is odd how much food he's ordering. Now, again, I don't know exactly the details, but I know it involved at least 20 chicken McNuggets, a large fry, a large soda, too. Needless to say, and you can probably see where this is going, it did not end well for Robert, or really for any of us. Because Robert was sitting in the back of the 15-passenger van with his girlfriend and a few other friends, and not too far down the road from McDonald's, Robert proceeded to deposit the contents of his McDonald's feast into the back of the van. It was not a pretty scene. I'm still indebted to the lady who cleaned that up. Now, perhaps in a related piece of news, and this has nothing to do with anything, not long after that, Rob and his girlfriend broke up. I don't know if that's related or not, just saying. All that to say, though, all that to say, when you're getting too much input from the, input from the top of the pyramid, you're asking for trouble. Ideally, we should be eating more things on the bottom than we are from the top. If we want our bodies to be functioning properly, we need good input. We need to put the right things in our body. And by the same token, if we want to function properly spiritually, we need to think about the types of things that we're putting into our mind. We need to think about the spiritual food that we are putting into our bodies. And to that end, I would introduce you to another permit, one that I was introduced to this summer. It's called the Wisdom Permit. Now, to give proper credit, I actually learned about this when we were on sabbatical and we were visiting another church. It's taken from a book by Brett McCracken simply entitled The Wisdom Pyramid. I think it's exceptionally helpful in thinking about the types of spiritual food that we should put in our minds. So similar to the food pyramid, the basic idea here is that we should be feasting regularly on the things at the bottom of the pyramid while only dabbling occasionally on the items at the top. So you can see here, if hopefully it's big enough for you to be able to see, at the bottom of the pyramid is the Bible or the Word of God. In terms of what we're thinking about most, in terms of that which captivates us most often, the Bible should be at the forefront. 
as we meditate on the truths of God's word, we are without question, without question, we are meditating on that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. In other words, we're meditating on something entirely consistent with Philippians 4, 8. We're keeping our minds fed, we're keeping our souls healthy, and we're keeping us from despair because we're meditating on that which is excellent and praiseworthy. Now above that on the pyramid is the church, meaning in this case the people of God. As we interact with God's spirit-filled people and as we talk about things of Christ, it helps us to build our lives on the foundation of the good news of the gospel and orient our lives around the person and work of Christ. So as we spend time with God's people, we are encouraged to keep thinking about that which is good and right and true. And above that's nature, which points us to God's beautiful design, his wonderful creativity. As we see a waterfall, or as we observe an otter playing in the river, we see God's handiwork, and we can't, be help, or we can't help but worship. Now, the fourth spot on the pyramid, if you keep going up there, is books. As we read authors who put their finger on things that is true about the world, we learn about God and the world he created. The same can be said of the next thing on the pyramid here, which is beauty. It would include things like art and music and culture. Lovely things that direct our attention upward. And then lastly, we have the internet and social media. In and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with the internet and social media. And in fact, there are times where the internet and social media can help us better understand who God is and think about what's good and right and true. But having said that, we have to be honest, that's not always the case, is it? In fact, oftentimes it's the opposite. And that's where this pyramid, I think, becomes really helpful as a way of thinking about the types of spiritual food we're putting into our bodies. Just like there's nothing wrong with eating a Twinkie. And hear me, there's nothing wrong with eating a Twinkie. Just like there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being on the internet and social media. But if our diet consists primarily of Twinkies, we have a problem. And by the same token, if our thought life consists primarily of that which we read on the internet or social media, it's not going to end well either. And it's at this point I just want to make an observation here. I think for a lot of us in this room, our pyramid is flipped. We spend far more time surfing the internet and scrolling through social media than we do reading the Bible and delighting in the truths of God's word. Think about this. The average adult, the average adult spends roughly two hours and 30 minutes on social media each day. The average teenager, three hours and one minute each day. Based on that data, the average 10-year-old will eventually spend 3.4 million minutes on social media in their lifetime. In other words, six years and eight months of their life will be on social media. For those that are heavy users of social media, which by the way, there's a lot of people who fall in that category. People use social media nine hours a day. The lifetime figure will be closer to 18 or 19 years of their life. But to be clear, this is not just a social media issue. The average smartphone user interacts with their phone roughly 2,617 times a day. We are addicted to our phones. And we are addicted to entertainment in general. Whether it be YouTube videos or cable news programming or random internet articles, we are hooked. And listen, the problem is that most social media and most media in general, if we're honest, does not line up with Philippians 4.8, does it? It's not true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. In fact, most of the time, it's the opposite. And given that reality, and given the amount of time we spend on it, is it any wonder then that as a whole, we lack a passion for Christ? Is it any wonder that we don't have a desire to do the right things? If we keep putting salt into our Kool-Aid, it's no wonder that the Kool-Aid doesn't taste good. When we flip the pyramid, which again, I think, if we're honest, a lot of us are, 
The result is that instead of being filled with the fruit of the Spirit, we become filled with the fruit of the age. Instead of being filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, which is the fruit of the Spirit, we instead become filled with anxiety, bitterness, anger, a critical spirit, a harsh tongue, grumpiness. If you don't believe me, just go on social media sometime. There's not the fruit of the Spirit most of the time. Instead, it's the fruit of the age. When we're putting in the wrong ingredients, it's no wonder that the end product we get is not what we'd want. So church, the question I would ask you this morning is this. What do we need to do to flip the pyramid back to its proper orientation? Now, by the way, I think it's important when I talk about flipping the pyramid back to its proper orientation, I'm not just talking about a matter of time spent on each of those things. We could look at the pyramid and say, okay, I need to spend five hours a day reading the Bible, four hours with people in the church, three hours in nature, two hours in books, one hour with beauty, and five minutes on social media. But I don't think that's a helpful way of thinking about this pyramid because that's just not realistic. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm not talking that we have to spend X amount of time on this and X amount of time on this. What I'm talking about is that everything we do should filter from the bottom up. That all of our thoughts should be consumed and driven by what the Bible says, and then that filters into the rest of the pyramid. So for example, when we're in nature, we look at a mountain, and we don't just see a mountain as being beautiful on its own, but rather we understand it's God who made the mountain, and we give glory to Him. Or as we're reading a book, it's not just that we're reading the book for the information in the book itself, but we're comparing it to what the Bible says. And we're wondering, is this consistent with the biblical worldview? Or as we're listening to music, we're thanking God that he's given us this gift and our hearts are being drawn upward. Or even as we're on the internet and social media, we're thinking through the lens of what the Bible teaches. We're asking, is this helping me to grow in displaying the fruit of the Spirit? So again, the point is not just that it's a simple input issue, but it's that is the whole of the bottom of the pyramid filtering up. Are our thoughts being consumed by what the Word of God says, by that which is good and excellent and worthy of praise? That's the question. And so my question is, how can we get to a place where we're spending more time thinking about that which is excellent and praiseworthy and less time thinking about that which is frivolous and worldly? I want to be clear here. This is not just a question I'm asking you. This is a question I'm asking me. Because the truth is, I know I fritter away way too much time on my phone also. Now to be sure, there are legitimate purposes for a phone. Hear me, there's lots of times where I'm texting people, which would actually fall in the category of the church, right? I'm reaching out to people, asking how I can pray. There's times where I'm looking up things for a sermon. There are good things to do on our phones. But a lot of the time, and I'm just going to confess here, when I'm at home, the kids have gone to bed, or sometimes even when they're still awake, if I'm honest, I'm just wasting time on my phone, doing things that aren't really building up my soul. I'm just reading about sports or politics, world news, and the like. My phone has a feature on it, which gives me a weekly report of my screen time. And I have to be honest, the first time I saw the figure, I'm like, whoa, that's quite a bit. And I was convicted. I should do something about this. But you know what's happened since then? When I get the weekly report, I dismiss it without even looking at the number. Because I know it's going to be more than I want it to be. And the truth is, I just don't want to know what it says. Now, it's kind of embarrassing to admit that out loud, but I think the first step in acknowledging, or the first step in dealing with the problem is acknowledging it. And I think we have to be honest. We have a phone problem. I have a phone problem. And one of the effects of that problem is that we spend far too much time thinking about things that do not line up with Philippians 4.8. So my challenge for us this morning is let's flip the pyramid back. Now maybe that means figuring out how to get more of the bottom part of the pyramid in your life. Figuring out how do I regularly spend time in the Word? Or how do I regularly spend time with God's people? Those are good questions. Or maybe it means taking things off the top. Less time on the internet. Less time on social media. Less time watching television. 
Maybe it means a combination of both. But let me encourage you this morning to reorient your life in light of what Philippians 4 8 is teaching so that we're spending more time thinking about that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. Spending more time in the Word and less time on YouTube. More time in nature, less time surfing our phones. More time with the people of God, less time with the people on our televisions. More time thinking about that which is excellent and praiseworthy, less time thinking about that which is cool and trendy. If we want a better finished product, a life that's honoring to Christ, it starts with putting the right ingredients in. Thinking about that which is good and right and pure. Most notably, this means thinking frequently about the good news of the gospel. Because as we think about what Jesus has done for us, as we read about it in the Bible, as we talk about it with other Christians, this is what encourages us to live differently. We're filled with joy, but we also have a desire to live the way Jesus did. As churches, we put these things into our mind, eventually it does affect the way that we live. And that's the second part of the equation here in verses 8 and 9. Not only is Paul challenging us to think about right things, which he is, but he's also challenging us to do the right things. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Listen how 8 leads into 9 here. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So clearly Paul did not just want the Philippians to think about right things, although he did, but he wanted them to do the right things too. What they learned and received and heard and seen in him. In other words, what they'd seen from his example, he wanted them to put those things to practice. They were to live them out. And so at the end of the day, it does matter how we think, but it also matters how we live. It's one thing to think right things, it's another to do them. For example, I can think to myself, I should serve my wife, and I should look for ways that I can bless her, but it's another thing for me to actually do that. It's one thing for me to be convicted. I should lead my family spiritually. It's another for me to actually do it. Now again, one of the points of this passage is that right thinking precedes right action. So we should think rightly. But if right thinking does not lead to right action, the story is incomplete. In Matthew 7, Jesus compares the man who hears his words and does them to a man who builds his house on a rock. When the storm comes, Jesus says, that house will stand. Now in that passage, he doesn't say, it's the man who thinks about my words who stands. He says, it's the man who hears them and does them. This is the one who stands. In other words, what we're saying is right thinking is valuable. It's the right ingredients that we're putting in. But at the end of the day, those right thinking or meditating on the right things should lead to right actions. When we meditate on what Jesus has done, it should give us a desire to live more like Jesus. It should give us a desire to live like other Christians who are trying to follow Jesus' example also. So hear me, it's great if we get our pyramid in the right orientation here. It's necessary even. But if we don't actually live out the words that Jesus is teaching us, if we don't actually live out what the Bible says, then the pyramid eventually collapses. So think about right things, but do right things too. And do so knowing that as you think about right things and as you do right things, there will be a blessing. In fact, that's the other part of the passage that's really important. Look at the way verse 9 ends. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now sometimes when we talk about the importance of doing the right thing or thinking about right things, we make it sound like it's drudgery and duty. We just tell our kids, just do the right thing. Or in this case, we're saying, think about the right things. But verse 9 reminds us there is a tremendous blessing in doing what's right and thinking about what's right. Namely, the blessing is this, the God of peace is with us. Now notice in verse 9, Paul does not say that the peace of God will be with you. 
Rather, he says, the God of peace will be with you. It's one thing to have God's peace. It's another to know his presence. That's what he's talking about here. As we think and do right things, we know his presence. As we put the right things into our mind, and as we put those things to action, we know the God of peace. And let me say this. Even this week, I've been reminded of the truthfulness of verse 9. As most of you know, this was another long week for our family. My wife is in the hospital from Sunday to Friday, and honestly, we came home with no more answers than we started. And if I'm being honest with you guys, at the beginning of the week, I was just not in a great spot. I was frustrated with the doctors. I was a little bit bitter about our current lot in life. I was just in my head, and I was not in a good spot. But here's what changed. What changed is the Spirit of God brought to mind truths from God's Word. Specifically, I started thinking about some passages in Genesis related to Joseph's life. As I meditated on how God was at work in the midst of some really hard stuff in Joseph's life, being imprisoned wrongly, being cast into slavery. As I thought about those things, and as I thought about how God was at work, even in the midst of that, it was then that I started to feel peace. And I remembered God is sovereign and he's working even when we don't know what he's doing. Even when things are going the exact opposite of how we hope they go, God is still doing something. It was actually late at night one night and that's the truth that God brought to mind as I was laying in bed thinking about how hard this season is for us. And as I started thinking about that and meditating on scripture, it was then that I could start to feel his presence again. And it started with the Spirit impressing on me the truths of God's Word. It started with right thinking. And then what happened, by the grace of God, is I noticed it started to affect my actions. Instead of being angry with the doctors, I was filled with grace. And instead of being frustrated with our situation and bitter, I was instead again filled with joy. Something changed, and what changed is the God of peace was with me. Now, I should let you know that this is not a one-time process. In fact, even this weekend, again, I felt frustrated again, right? It comes and goes. And so you can't say, well, I thought about good things once and now I'm set. No, you have to keep reminding yourself over and over and over again, this is what the Word of God says. And this is where I'm going to put down my anchor. But when we do that, when we meditate on the truths of God's Word, and then we allow the truths of God's Word to affect the way that we live, the God of peace is with us. So friends, let me encourage you this morning. If your Kool-Aid tastes bad right now, perhaps you need to evaluate your ingredients. What are you putting into your mind? What are you meditating on throughout the day? What are you thinking about most? Because as we think about that which is excellent and praiseworthy, we'll want to do right things. But also, the God of peace will be with us. So church, my encouragement to you this morning is let's be a church that thinks about right things. And because we think about right things, let's be a church that does right things. And let's do so knowing that not only will the peace of God guard our hearts as we talked about last week, but the God of peace will be with us too. Listen, it's not easy. In fact, there's a battle in the world to do this. But I think the challenge is before us here. Let's think about what's right and let's do what's right for the glory of God and for our own joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us, and we thank you for the reminder today of the importance of thinking about that which is good and right and true and lovely and commendable, that which is excellent and worthy of praise. 
And God, we pray that we would spend time today and tomorrow and the rest of this week thinking about that which is good. Rather than being filled with the thinking of this world, we pray that we would do everything we can to think through the prism of of what your word teaches. Help us to meditate most on what Jesus did. Because as we do that, we know that we will have a desire to live differently, and we will know your peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.